What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Dr. Paul Saladino. I was incredibly excited to get him on here, and he certainly did not disappoint. I was honestly kind of surprised at the direction the conversation went, though, to be totally frank with you. I thought we were going to really dive into, you know, high-fat, uh, keto, high-fat carnivore, and using that from a performance standpoint. But we And we did talk about that some, for sure, but we talked a lot more about just how to be a better human, how to have a, a good stewardship of the land that you're living on, how to really prioritize nutrient quality and raising animals ethically and, and living in a sustainable fashion that contributes to the overall betterment of humanity, which I am incredibly passionate about and more than happy to dive into. So it was very cool to do just that with Dr. Paul Saladino. After talking with him, it it's obvious that you know he and I see, I see eye to eye on most things. I have utmost respect for him as a human and I really appreciate him taking the time to talk with me. Definitely check out his book, The Carnivore Code. I, I have no doubt that it's just filled with information. I purchased a copy myself. I'm excited to dive into it. He puts in the work when it comes to the research he does, the the content he puts out. His podcast is gold. His book is going to be great. Everything that he's doing is just good, solid stuff. And he has a very holistic view towards everything that he does, which I can really appreciate as well. So, like I said, I was very excited to get him on here. I truly enjoyed the conversation. I feel you will as well. Without further ado, sit back, relax, enjoy, and learn something from Dr. Paul Saladino. And we are live, Dr. Paul Saladino. How are you, sir? I'm doing good, man. It's good to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Thanks for making the time. I'm excited to talk with you. Interestingly enough, I actually had a... Dr. Ted Naiman on yesterday, and <laughs> it's going to be an interesting conversation with you because I heard the podcast with basically you and him talking and debating high protein versus high fat, and there were so many times I wanted to just like jump in and on that conversation. So I'm I'm glad I'm able to get you on here both kind of back to back. Absolutely, I really really appreciate what you do, what you speak. I I truly feel like I resonate with everything you say. Um, which is why I'm excited to get you on here today because I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion. Obviously, carnivore is super hot right now, um, and I feel like you bring a very interesting light to that because there's there's not a whole lot of talk. I mean, keto has obviously been popular for quite a while, but I think from like a bridging the gap between keto and carnivore in the context of high fat for performance with an emphasis on micronutrient density. Um, and just quality of food overall, I feel like you do a really great job at, at illustrating that and kind of stressing the importance of that. Well, thanks, man. I think that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. As we'll probably dig into, uh, I fear that, uh, and I've seen repeatedly in my practice, that too much protein without adequate amounts of fat causes a lot of problem for people. And we can dig into the details and talk about exactly what I mean by those things so that people aren't kind of lost in the nuance. But yeah, I think micronutrients are critically important. And macronutrient balance, man, that's valuable. This is what makes us thrive or kind of struggle. And, you know, the carnivore diet's an interesting place to be right now. It's a fascinating way, to, way of eating that's helping so many people. And I really am just grateful to be able to contribute to that space and add to that discussion in, in a pretty scientific, or I hope is a scientific and a granular way and help people kind of fill in some of those details. I think the devil is in the details in terms of who succeeds and who fails with the carnivore diet. Totally agree. Totally agree. I want to kind of give the audience some some foundation here. So if you kind of want to just talk a little bit about your background and what kind of led you to carnivore in the first place, like what was the motivation behind going that direction? Yeah, so I'm a traditionally trained medical doctor. I'm an MD. I did my residency at the University of Washington and did my medical school at the University of Arizona. Before I was an MD, I was a PA. I worked in cardiology as a PA. And for most of my life, I've been really interested in food and how it affects humans. I think this is something that you get. Um, natural bodybuilders, bodybuilders are really the originators in this space. I think they were the first people to kind of popularize or really promulgate the notion, advance the notion that food is huge. And the type of foods we put in our body, both at a macronutrient protein, fat, and carbohydrate, and micronutrient level can profoundly influence the way we feel. My focus is more on autoimmunity and inflammation as it relates to 
autoimmune illness of all shapes and sizes, everything from psychiatric illness to dermatologic illness to GI illness. But in the bodybuilding space, you guys are looking at how all that stuff affects the way your body looks, which is, though it, it often gets criticized, it's often a pretty good proxy for internal health. I think at some point, you know, in the natural bodybuilding world, we can make an argument that people can look good on the outside, but not always be ideally healthy on the inside. But I think most of the time, if people look good and they feel good, they're probably doing pretty well. So I think we're both interested in the same ultimate goals and the same metrics uh, and use a lot of the same tools to get there. Personally, I had my own autoimmune disease. So I had eczema, which was pretty severe. It was all over my elbows and knees. And I used to do a lot of jujitsu. I still miss it. I haven't done it much recently because I've been too busy surfing, but I want to get back into it. But I did a lot of jujitsu when I was in college, uh, excuse me, when I was in medical school. And, you know, being on the mats, my knees and elbows would flare from time to time pretty badly to the point that it was kind of a problem for me. It was pretty debilitating and really got in the way of me living my life the way I wanted to. I tried to start leveraging my diet at that point without a whole lot of success. I was pretty much eating paleo, um, at times low carb paleo, ketogenic paleolithic diets. And that didn't really seem to resolve my eczema. When I went back to medical school or later on in my continued to have pretty severe eczema, despite cutting out more and more foods. And I basically got to the point where I was cutting out nearly all the plant foods. And then you hear Jordan Peterson on Joe Rogan talking about his autoimmune disease and sleep apnea and how he positively, positively responded to a carnivore diet. And, you know, the light bulb comes on and you think, oh man, maybe plants are what are triggering so many people's autoimmune illness. We know that plants exist on a spectrum of toxicity and maybe this is the problem here. And maybe this is what I'm missing. So I dug into the carnivore diet, kind of researched it a little bit and decided to try it. And within a few days, my mood was so much better than it had been previously. And I thought, this is surprising. What's going on here? Why do I think about things differently now? And then within a few weeks, my eczema was completely gone and totally resolved. And I thought there is something to this. I really need to dig into it. It was, that was a little less than two years ago. So almost two years ago at that point. And Ever since then, I've just been kind of deep in this literature, thinking about all the arguments against a carnivore diet, all the arguments for a carnivore diet. And I wrote this book, man. I hope you've seen it. I wrote The Carnivore Code, which is out now, and it's crushing it. It's already a bestseller. And I think it was really fun to put those ideas on paper. But, you know, when, when you tell people, hey, this is a diet based entirely or almost entirely on animal foods, because I do offer a spectrum of plant toxicity in the book and some idea of um, which plant foods are least toxic. And I offer a carnivore-ish type diet in addition to a strictly carnivore diet. Um, people kind of don't know what to think about this. And I don't know, when I first heard about the carnivore diet, I thought it was crazy. So I'll normalize that reaction in listeners. But the more I dug into it, gosh, it just made more and more sense. And you hear about so many people finding so many improvements with this way of eating that it's just not something we can ignore. And I knew I had to write the book to defend it and show people why it wasn't something that was just completely, you know, half cocked, cockamamie, crazy thing. It's actually something that has real merit and it's going to help a lot of people. Totally agree, man. I, I picked up a copy of the book. I'm excited to read it. Um, and I feel like, you know, if you look at the keto diet, that's pretty counter to what traditional dieting has always taught us. So I feel like if people are receptive to that style of eating, they kind of have, you know, an inkling as to, you know, maybe maybe the traditional dieting protocol we've been taught our whole lives isn't the best way to go. So I feel like the people that at least who have adopted keto are going to be pretty receptive to at least considering carnivore. Yeah, I think that the carnivore diet is going to appeal most to people who have autoimmune disease and illness or people who are looking to lose weight or just optimize or open-minded and curious. Uh, I think for the casual observer, it's going to be a pretty challenging thing. I did a news program the other day and they were interviewing people on the street in Detroit and saying, have you heard about the carnivore diet? And they were just like, I've never heard of that. <laughs> you know. And I think that most people, um, maybe you're right, if the keto is the gateway drug to carnivore or maybe paleo, I think if people like you're saying are aware that mainstream dietary advice really fails us as humans and they've had some success or a lot of success with paleolithic diets or ketogenic diets, they're probably going to be intrigued by the carnivore diet. Absolutely. I think if, if we're just able to imagine that um, some way of eating in accordance with our genetics, eating in accordance with our ancestral programming 
is going to result in better health, then the carnivore diet is becomes much more interesting and people can really kind of wrap their head around it a little bit more. Totally agree. And I feel like if someone takes a step back and looks at the just the the evolutionary spectrum as to like where we've come from from an ancestral standpoint, it's hard not to be be in favor of a heavily meat based approach to nutrition. I mean, most of these, you know, chronic illnesses started to crop up at the advent of, you know, modern day agriculture. So it's it's not unrealistic to think that we can at least reverse some of these trends by kind of going more towards that animal-based nutrition. Yeah, and if we look at indigenous hunter-gatherers who are currently living, they don't really suffer from chronic disease in the way that we do as westernized humans. And so we can take a lot of information from that. I talk about that a lot in the book. Um, Certainly free-living indigenous hunter-gatherers now do eat some plant foods, but they don't eat the plant foods that we are eating. People will mm-hmm. say, oh, indig- our ancestors ate, ate half of their food from plants. And that's a little bit of a misleading statement. As I talk about in the book, there's pretty darn good evidence looking at stable isotopes of both Neanderthals and free-living humans, Homo sapiens from 40 to 50,000 years ago, and also from the teeth, the stable isotopes of the teeth of a number of species from 2 million years ago, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Paranthropus. And again, I talk about all these studies in the book that we were eating primarily meat, majority of our diet based on these stable isotopic analyses. And so when people look at hunter-gatherers and they say, oh, they eat some plants, I think that what's so misleading about that characterization is, like I said, number one, they don't eat plants the way we are eating plants. Specifically, they are usually fermenting those plants to detoxifying them, suggesting that they are aware that those plants have toxins in them. And um, they don't eat the parts of the plants that we are eating in large amounts. They're eating less toxic parts of plants. Mostly they're eating fruit, which we can get into. And even within these hunter-gatherer cultures, they are not able to get animals that are as big or animals as often as they used to because of sociopolitical pressures that are being placed on them. In Africa, they can't hunt elephants anymore. And the big game are what they really need to survive. And so just looking at human biochemistry and human biology, it's absolutely necessary that humans need to get some large amount of their calories from fat or carbohydrates. We, and this is what I was debating Ted Naiman about. There's really a threshold. There is a physiologic ceiling into how many of our calories we can get from protein before we start to see nitrogenous waste spilling over from the urea cycle and leading to ammonia accumulation in the body and pretty much negative consequences. That's about 35, 40% of our calories from protein. I'd love to get your take on this too, if you have an alternative perspective. But once we exceed 35, 40% of our calories from protein, we must get the remaining 60 to 65% from from fat or carbohydrates. And the problem is that unless we are hunting big animals, the size of a bison or bigger, there's not enough fat on the animal to give us enough fat to complement the protein. So basically, if a society, if a free-living hunter-gatherer society is forced to hunt animals smaller than bison, they are going to have to have carbohydrates in their diet because you cannot do human biochemistry with that as much protein and as little fat as they're going to be getting. Deer, antelope, these are very lean. But once you get to a buffalo, there's about 15% body fat. There's enough fat to make up for that. Um, to balance that protein. But most of the people in Africa and even the Amazon now, they're not hunting big animals anymore. They've gone extinct. The megafauna are pretty much gone other than buffalo. And so they're forced to include more carbohydrates, which skews our perspective on what they're eating. Regardless, I mean, even taking that in perspective, what we know, and as you're suggesting very correctly, is that these hunter-gatherers are not experiencing chronic disease and um, an illness like we are. So there's something really interesting going on there as well totally agree and honestly like if you look even in today's era at just performance athletes as a whole i mean i used to follow the traditional bodybuilding diet of you know very high carbohydrate based foods and if you look at protein i mean i feel like there's definitely an upper threshold for protein there's definitely a lower threshold for protein you need to have adequate protein depending on what your goals are but Protein is not a very good substrate for energy. It's just an inefficient way to produce energy. So you're either going to get it from carbohydrates or fats. And having gone the route of getting it from carbohydrates, there's just so much more of an adverse effect that comes along with that than, you know, comparing it to 
a quality dietary fat source like I've found with the ketogenic diet. I feel like from a performance standpoint especially, if you have a solid level of fat adaptation and you've got everything else dialed in, you're going to be much better off hormonally, metabolically, physiologically, and psychologically if you're getting a, a quality fat source as a primary source of energy. I think you're right, and I talk about that in the book as well. I think there's a little bit of nuance in terms of where the carbohydrates might come from. and But generally speaking, I think that in, in general, fat is a better fuel for humans than carbohydrates. And I think you and I would probably agree on this. I think fat has been the primary energy source for humans evolutionarily as well. I believe that ketogenic states, ketosis is our default, that for the majority of our time, as evolving humans, prehistorical humans, indigenous humans, and currently living hunter-gatherers, those people are in ketosis. Mm -hmm. And this is something that is not known. I think that it's very unusual and really evolutionarily inconsistent to imagine that our ancestors or that free-living hunter-gatherers are getting two to 300 grams of carbohydrates daily. That's very implausible in nature, unless you are in the spring or the fall when there are tons of fruit around. I'm sure that you've done some good camping and hunting and stuff. For most of the year, carbohydrates are very scarce in nature. You might dig up some tubers every once in a while, but getting 400 or 300 or even 200 carbohydrates from tubers in the wild. Most of them are toxic. What isn't toxic is small and fibrous. I just think that our ancestors were, you know, when they were getting carbohydrates, I think they were probably even low carb. You know, I think that and this is, of course, extrapolation and historical reconstruction, but anyone who's spent time in the wilderness will know that it's pretty hard to get 300 grams of carbohydrates from raspberries. You know, yeah. you're going to probably get sick of eating raspberries before you get that many carbohydrates. And you've done experiments with this as well. If we are eating less than 100 grams of carbohydrates per day, we're probably going to have ketones at some point. If we're eating less than 50, we're almost certainly going to be in ketosis at some point, especially after an overnight fast. So I think that the regularity with which we eat now is much greater than we used to. And I think that the amount of carbohydrates that we are eating now and the sources of carbohydrates are much more than we used to. I'm not saying that we never had carbohydrates. I just think the default mode, I think the majority of the time we were in a low carbohydrate state, we were probably making ketones. And for people to suggest that that is dangerous or inconsistent with our history. In my opinion, that's to misunderstand, you know, historical anthropology. And, and I think that, uh, I think being in ketosis is the norm being out of ketosis and using glycolysis is probably the exception to the rule. Totally agree. And what's, what's sad is that in the day and age that we're in currently, the people that are leveraging carbohydrates, you know, unfortunately the majority of them are not doing it you know, in a, in a perfect, well-formulated fashion in which they're growing all their own vegetables. You know, it's not done in a natural way at all. I mean, most natural bodybuilders out there that are doing like a flexible dieting or if it fits your macros, or not even bodybuilders, just athletes in general, like they'll post pictures on Instagram of them just crashing a bunch of pancakes and, you know, all these frostings and everything. So it's putting a very negative image of where people are getting their food out there. And that just becomes reality. And for me, like one of the main motivation factors for sticking with keto or carnivore or just this ancestral type eating is not only is it more natural and sustainable, but you look at what you're doing as a like from a holistic standpoint, like it just makes more sense. Like this is a much healthier way to live, period. I think so. And like I said, there's some nuance. And in the book I'll offer, uh, I do offer a plant toxicity spectrum. I think there are much less toxic ways to get carbohydrates if people want a carbohydrate cycle or they want to experiment with carbohydrates around workouts. I think that's totally reasonable. There are less toxic ways to get carbohydrates and there are carbohydrates in nature, but like I said, it's mostly the non-toxic tubers, maybe the non-sweet fruits like avocado, which has a moderate amount of carbohydrates or things like berries or, um, even things like honey, I think, are much less toxic than many of these processed carbohydrates and can serve a role in the diet if we want to use carbohydrates. But I think our default mode should still be low carb most of the time. One of the things that's been fascinating for me is thinking about whether we should include carbohydrates from time to time, if that's beneficial, if it's not. Um, 
I think we're still learning about it. I've, I've been pretty much strict carnivore uh, for almost two years now. And in the last month or so, I've been kind of playing around with some non-toxic carbohydrates. Right now, I'm kind of playing around with honey. Mm-hmm. And that's been a fun thing. And But I think that when we do that, we have to... Um, we have to track our blood sugars and look at postprandial glucose elevations. I talk about all this in the book, but as you've demonstrated, and I think as I've demonstrated and many people in the space have demonstrated, high performance activities are completely possible with essentially zero carbohydrates in the diet. And I don't think humans have a need for that. I think we have an incredible ability to just be in ketosis all the time. And for most people, that's a very healthy way to do things because they're cutting out the they're cutting out the carbs that are kind of the defaults, which are mostly junk. You know, most people, when they eat carbs, like you're saying, the bodybuilders, when they're going to use carbs, they're not doing squash, they're doing Pop-Tarts. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Yeah, 100%. So I really want to dive into this because this is a subject matter that I feel like gets a lot of attention. There's just a lot of confusion around it. So from an evolutionary perspective, I don't think there's any, you know, instance of a group of people eating specifically ketogenic foods indefinitely like I feel like they would have eaten a tuber or fruit if they happened upon it um, so I don't think from an evolutionary perspective there was any instance of people being indefinitely strict keto however I don't think that there's any downside to being strict keto like me personally I've been strict keto for five or six years now uh, without any you know carb refeeds or any of that stuff um, and I've noticed that my performance has only continually improved like it's had a compounding effect so to speak and my theory is that the more the more strict you stay keto for the longer period of time, you you basically adapt uh, and you're just more efficient. I mean, more efficient in every sense of the word. Like I'm able to recover faster from workouts. I, you know, there's been studies done about how you can replenish glycogen just as fast when you're in a fat adapted state. And I feel like that continually compounds for the longer you're you're strict keto. So I'd be curious with you having done these carb experiments here lately, have you noticed any inherent benefit whatsoever? Like what are some things that you've picked up on? It's been pretty subtle if there's been a benefit to tell you the truth. And you're absolutely right. The literature, which I've talked about and I discuss in the book, does suggest that there is a period of ketogenic adaptation. And I think that makes sense. I'll just kind of go off on this tangent and then I'll circle back to your question. Um, I think that for free living humans who are 30, 40, 50, 20 years old, to never have been in ketosis is completely evolutionary and evolutionarily inconsistent. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I think most of us, when we try ketogenic low carb diets in our thirties or twenties or forties or fifties or sixties, that's crazy that, that we've gone multiple decades with always having two to 300 grams of carbohydrates per day. And our body's going to have to adjust. I think evolutionarily we would have been adapted to fat from day one, right? Mm-hmm. I think that our first foods would have been meat and, and organ meats and, even growing up as children, I think we would have had low carb diets. And I think we would have grown up with low carb diets and been, we would have been fat adapted by the time we hit our third birthday easily. And even babies are in ketosis very frequently between meals. So I think we probably never would have lost fat adaptation in our, in our history as humans. And so it's not surprising that for a lot of us, it takes time to adapt. And the studies do show that it takes three to six weeks or sometimes more to get fully keto adapted. But that once we do that, there's no evidence of sympathetic nervous system activation. There's no evidence of glucose intolerance. There's no evidence of insulin resistance. That's, these are just pernicious rumors and misunderstandings of the data. There's no evidence of increased cortisol. And, there, and looking at glycogen repletion in the FASTER study and other studies with high-intensity interval training, there's really no difference in what we can achieve as humans, whether we're running on glycolysis or running on carbs. So it's very striking um, what happens with keto adaptation. And I think most people who feel a performance decline are experiencing that early on and they're making mistakes, the kind of things that I try and help people troubleshoot in the book, not enough salt, too much protein, not enough fat, et cetera, et cetera. So your experience is not particularly surprising. My uh, experience, so I, I probably went over a year and a half of strict carnivore, and I still would consider myself a strict carnivore because honey is not a plant food per se, you know? Um, but, you know, my workouts were still great, and I just wanted to experiment and say, you know, am I going to feel any different? Am I going to gain any weight? Is my body composition going to change? I'm going to put a continuous glucose monitor here on soon and um, investigate how that is going to affect things with carbohydrates. But 
to be honest with you, with the honey, I'll do it twice a day with meals. I'll do a few tablespoons at a meal. So I'm probably between 50 and 100 grams of carbs a day from a non-plant source, which doesn't appear to have any plant defense chemicals or toxins in it, as far as I can tell, which is why I select that choice of carbs right now. Honestly, like it's been kind of uh, lackluster. It's like, I don't feel worse, but my workouts don't feel a million times better. Mm -hmm. And I think I wanted to give it a little time to kind of go back to uh, using carbohydrates so that my CGM readings, my continuous glucose monitor readings won't be completely whacked. Um, but I think that shortly after doing the CGM, I'll probably just do a cycle or go back to not having any carbs with no plans to really include them again. So it's been an interesting experiment. I don't feel worse necessarily. I certainly do like the mental clarity that comes from ketosis. And I uh, sometimes feel that a little bit when I eat the honey, like, oh, I don't feel quite as good mentally, but my gym performance is about the same. So it's been not, not particularly impressive so far for me. And so, I don't really weigh a whole lot more. I'm not a bodybuilder, but I'm pretty muscular. Mm -hmm. Everyone always says, oh, my muscles don't feel as full without carbs. And I think my muscles don't feel more full with carbs. Like, I don't know. Yeah. What I do think you notice with that in terms of muscle fullness? That is so much dependent upon electrolytes. Like I can... I can do, like, for instance, just as an example, I'm going to do a, a keto caloric refeed the night before my show to help fill out, and I'm going to increase sodium by about 1,500 milligrams and increase overall calories coming from both protein and fat by about 30 to 40%. And I assure you, I'll feel more full and look more tight than many of the competitors that will be using carbohydrates, and they're going to have a lot more flux with regard to water retention and just, you know, a lot more variability than you want to kind of have to screw around with on show day. So I feel like doing a ketogenic standpoint, uh, you know, manipulating and tweaking electrolytes slightly and then getting that increase in fuel from uh, proteins and fats is 100% the way to go. Mm. And so what is your normal salt intake? Uh, for me, well, I feel like you can pretty much reset that equilibrium point, whether higher or lower. You just have to give your body time to adjust to that equilibrium for me personally i shoot for about four to five uh, grams of sodium a day and then i'll bump that up by the 1500 or 2000 milligrams uh the night before the show and you're talking sodium not sodium chloride yeah so it, it's going to be about uh i'll do about eight to ten grams of salt which i think equates to about four to five uh thousand milligrams of sodium if that makes sense yeah, absolutely makes sense. And I talk about that in the book as well. Those are right about what I recommend for people in the book, six to 10 grams of salt. And I think a lot of people get that wrong and a lot of people don't get enough salt. And that causes some pretty significant problems for people mm -hmm. in the long run. You know, I think this is a real, this is a real stumbling block for people. And one of the interesting things, and you, you point this out appropriately, that there's an adaptation period with most of this stuff. And um, in the beginning, the insulin is going to drop and we're going to waste sodium and we're going to need more sodium. But over time, it does seem that the body gradually adjusts more and more to all of this and it gets to be more and more kind of steady state. And I think that for most people, um, if they're going in and out of ketosis, this may be one of the issues. But if you're in it long term, the body pretty much realizes, all right, now I'm an electric car. I'm not running on gas anymore. I'm running on the alternative fuel, which is probably a little cleaner. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you get all those systems in place and you're, you're off to the races. Completely agree. What would you say is like the, you know, Achilles heel, so to speak, of the carnivore? Like if there's anything that is a knock against it that actually holds weight, I mean, what would that be? I think off the top of my head, I would say that the main concern on the carnivore diet is twofold. As Westerners, we're not used to eating organ meats mm -hmm. and I'm fairly concerned about people only eating meat on a carnivore diet. Anyone who knows my work will know that I am no fan of exclusively meat-based carnivore diets. And I don't like the characterization of a carnivore diet as a meat-based diet. It's meat and organs, it's animal-based diet. And so I think that, that one of the main concerns or main, one of the main knocks of a carnivore diet is, hey, look, I don't think people are going to thrive just eating ground beef patties and bacon all the time. And there's a few folks out there who say that's what they're eating and they feel great. And I'm just thinking, yeah, I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. Do it however you want to do it. And I'm happy that you're thriving, but that's not, that's not the answer. And so I think that the main problem or the main Achilles heel of a carnivore diet, like any intentional diet choice is that it has to be quote, well constructed. 
And once it's well constructed, things kind of come together and work better. And that was another reason I wrote the book. I wanted to give people my perspective, my detailed perspective on how to construct a carnivore diet well. Um, I'm not a fan of just ribeyes and, and eggs for a carnivore diet. I think it's important to imagine where are we getting our riboflavin? Where are we getting our copper? Where are we getting other nutrients that are really not found outside of liver and kidney and some of these organs that our ancestors would surely have eaten, but many of us are not so comfortable with because of our upbringing. So I think that's the problem for people is, you know, if you're not going to eat organ meats, just make sure that you are thinking about where the nutrients are coming from. And in that situation, maybe it's good to include a few more plants in your diet. But I think with any diet, if we're constructing it intentionally, we have to know where the nutrients we are getting are coming from. And on that point, I think it's important to point out that if people are only eating overly cooked meats and boiled meats, you know, you can get nutrient deficient. And one of those nutrients can be vitamin C. I think there's plenty of vitamin C in fresh, not overcooked animal foods, whether it's steak or liver, especially the organ meats are very rich in, uh, in vitamin C. But if, if someone is just going to eat um, overcooked steak or hamburger or boiled meats, there's plenty of possibility of nutrient deficiency. And I think that's one of the reasons people criticize the diet. And again, that's why I wanted to lay it out for people in the book. Yeah, I think I think people need to put forth the effort to incorporate those foods. And even if even if people are not experiencing any acute adverse effects to just eating ribeyes every day, for instance, I feel like that's just simply an irresponsible way to consume meat. Like I look at things from a holistic perspective as a hunter. I grew up hunting and I take pride in the fact that the animal that I kill, I try and make the most of and harvest as much of that uh, to be used as, as humanly possible. And I feel like simply eating the choice cuts of any animal is just not a holistic approach to obtaining food. I agree with you. I think in so many ways, you know, it's not the responsible choice. Um, there are so many nutrients in the other parts of the animal that are critical. And, you know, why are we going to waste those things anyway? Like we should be eating liver. That's, and it works. You know, if you look at the nutrient content of muscle meat compared to organ meats, they're quite complementary. So it's, it's very interesting, you know, and to ignore those things, to throw them out or to not take advantage of these cheaper ways of eating, people will often, you know, kind of lament how expensive a carnivore diet is. And I think, yeah, if you want to eat grass-fed ribeyes all the time, it's going to be expensive. But why would that shouldn't be the majority of your diet? What about what about some liver or some kidney or some spleen or these organs we're not familiar with? But the butcher will probably just give them to you. It's super cheap. It's not expensive at all. And then you can get bones cheaply and make bone broth. And I think that's a way of honoring the animal and also completing our nutritional repertoire. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And you can make it. Like I think the main aversion to that is people just are not familiar with it. They they weren't raised eating those types of foods. They don't know how to prepare it properly. There's just so much ignorance there. But I mean, any quick Google search would lend itself to a pretty decent recipe that makes it palatable. And then you're just getting all those nutrients and you can feel good about the fact that you're eating more holistically. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And if people are not familiar with ways to prepare organ meats, you know, we're working on an organ meat cookbook in the near future and ways to prepare that, but just basic things like pate and liverwurst. And I mean, people may know, you know, I'm, you can just eat liver raw. It's pretty good if it's frozen or from a healthy animal, people may kind of think that's gross, but it's pretty palatable. I mean, I imagine that being a hunter and eating organ meats your whole life, you probably enjoy them. I really enjoy them. Absolutely. What about fish? I know you've talked about the heavy metals that are present in most seafood because of just the, the <laughs> torture we've done to the planet. Um, where do you kind of go there? Just try and shoot for non-predatory fish, smaller fish, stuff of that nature? Yeah, I think we need to be a little careful with fish in general. Things I like wild salmon are reasonable, but even those have things like mercury as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, shellfish are nutritious, but shellfish are benthic. They're at the bottom of the ocean and are going to accumulate heavy metals like cadmium. So I think that if we are eating fish, we should be checking our heavy metal levels is the first thing I would say. A lot of people really like sardines, and I have some concerns that sardines are fairly oxidized and rancid. I mean, 
when was the last time you thought it was a good idea to store fish in oil or water for weeks or months at a time and then eat it? Uh, there are a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids that are quite fragile in fish. And I think the fresher the fish, the better, but I just can't get super excited about sardines. I mean, if you're traveling, maybe, but man, I, I, it's a small fish. Yes, that's great. It's good that you're eating the entire fish because it has some calcium in it from the bones, which is another thing that I think is important. But I, I personally am not comfortable recommending large amounts of fish in a diet for anyone these days. I mean, you can look at Tony Robbins and many other people who have made their diet from fish and they often get heavy metal toxicity. I think that pescatarian diets are well-intentioned, but quite dangerous these days. And people also need to know that when they go to get sushi, the majority of the sushi you're eating is farm-raised. So that's not a good option either. But, you know, occasional seafood is fine. Just be aware of the type of fish. And as you said, the smaller fish, the non-predatory fish, or the fish that are smaller or further down on the food chain are going to have less metal accumulation. But I've seen moderately elevated, elevated levels of mercury in my clients who eat salmon two or three times a week. They eat wild Alaskan salmon two or three times a week, and they have moderately ele elevated levels of mercury. So we think, is that important? Is it something to worry about? How is it affecting us? We're not sure. It's, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, because I don't know, man, like that's like fish is something I feel like people yearn to incorporate more of uh, because they're just always told that it's so healthy. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of fish, but I feel like you can't ignore the fact that these heavy metals are accumulating. I mean, do you, I mean, I guess just simply getting the, the test done is the, the best t telltale sign to know what, what your levels are and to kind of mitigate against it. Yeah, and it's fairly easy to get blood levels. I don't think people necessarily need to do provoked heavy metals in the urine or anything. I just, I would start with blood levels of lead, mercury, arsenic, and cadmium. And those all should be undetectable. You know, lead should be less than two, mercury should be less than two or 2.5. The cutoff for arsenic is going to be different on every lab, and the cutoff for cadmium is going to be different on every lab. But it's not uncommon that I see people with lead levels that are above two or three or four. Uh, mercury levels that are four or five or six. I've seen mercury in the 20s from a client that I had who ate a bunch of Chilean sea bass the week before or opa, you know, these fish and it's just the mercury levels go very high. So this is not, it's not a joke. Um, and if people are very into seafood and shellfish, definitely check your cadmium because those foods can accumulate it. I think we should all be checking heavy metals from time to time just so that we're not affected without knowing it. The majority of us can avoid it, but it's an easily correctable thing. Most of it is obtained from things that we can remove from our diet if we're intentional about it. Do you feel like we risk getting any toxins in from just a, a well-formulated carnivore-based diet that's particularly grass-fed and kind of the, the highest quality that we can obtain? I mean, is there any risk of any specific toxins like cadmium in kidneys, for instance? The, the amount of cadmium in kidneys is much lower than what I've seen in shellfish. Certainly... Kidneys do accumulate a little bit of cadmium. Uh, we specifically tested the kidneys from white oak pastures. They were pretty darn low in cadmium. We also tested their liver and a few other things, and they were really low in heavy metals. Nothing is completely pure, you know? And so we have to eat something. And people may not know this, but kale accumulates thallium. So if you're eating a lot of kale, you can get thallium toxicity as well. So it's a challenging time to be alive from that perspective. And some of it is just hard to know. There could be heavy metal deposits on certain fields that can end up in the food and the animals can get it inadvertently. Certainly, I think that the surface of our earth is becoming more polluted um, with industry and air pollution and things settling on the land. And you may want to know what's in the water of the animals you are eating. That's how animals get lead in their bodies. So it's it's delicate and it's a little bit tricky to to kind of sort all that stuff out. But my sense is that land ruminants are the cleanest animals we can eat by far. Um, and, you know, taking into account the plants and the plant toxins, I think that that's one of the reasons a carnivore diet is so beneficial for most people is that this is the cleanest source of things we can eat. Now, some pigs, some monogastrics are better than others, but generally speaking, um, pigs, I, I would not recommend eating a pig that's fed soy, for instance. I would be careful about chickens that are fed soy and when we move out of the ruminant category, you have to be a little more intentional about what the foods you are eating are eating. 
And a lot of chickens are fed corn and soy and people can react to that. A lot of, a lot of pigs are fed corn and soy or even worse. And so know what your foods were fed um, to, to create some sort of a sense of the quality of and the cleanliness of the things you're eating. But in answer to your question, yeah, I think that I think on a carnivore diet, you know, there's nothing is perfect. We can't be completely clean. That's all right. Our body has some ability to deal with it, but I think ruminants are the cleanest thing we've got by far. Totally agree. I think there's like a division in the space between, you know, the importance of grass fed versus grain fed. Cause like the people that are coming from the grain fed side, just to say that, you know, the, the cattle are largely grass fed the majority of their life and they're basically just grain finished. Do you feel like that grain finishing is enough to, to really, sequester that much of a toxic effect on the meat itself or what's your take on that i fear that it might be and if you look at it it shouldn't be too surprising we know that our microbiome can shift within the course of a few days of changing food and like i said i can have clients who eat high mercury fish and their mercury level goes high within days when we're looking at grain-fed cattle we're thinking about both water-soluble and fat-soluble toxins and most people who have eaten grain-fed versus grass-fed meat will know that grain-fed meat is often fattier. Well, all that fat got laid down while they were eating grain. And so it wouldn't be completely crazy to suggest that in a few months of grain feeding, which is generally what happens to them when they are uh, grain-finished, that, that you're going to accumulate new fat and that, that in that fat could be stored fat-soluble toxins. In the book, I specifically talk about atrazine, which is a pesticides sprayed on corn and some other grains that can have xenoestrogenic effects in the human body, binding to estrogen receptors in ways that we don't want to happen. There are many other toxins. I think it's pretty clear that a grass-fed animal, grass-fed, grass-finished from a good farm is going to be a cleaner animal. Um, I think you can make a lot of arguments around that. And so I want to respect where people are coming from, but I also think that, that grass feeding and grass finishing of well-raised animals is a worthwhile investment for us as humans. And furthermore, it kind of goes back to the ethics and the ethos of all of it. The way that the land reacts to clustered feeding and concentrated animal feeding operations and grain finishing of animals is, is not the same as the way the land reacts and is impacted by grass feeding and grass finishing. If people have been to farms like White Oak or Belcampo or any farm where cattle are raised on a pasture, kind of looks like it's supposed to. They're out there eating grass and pooping on the land. And that kind of an impact on the land is good for the soil. It appears to enrich the amount of organic matter in the soil, which sequesters more carbon and also allows for more productivity of the land. One of the key factors into how much grass can be grown on any amount of land is how much organic matter is in the soil. Mm -hmm. And when there's more organic matter in the soil, the soil can also sequester more carbon and water. So there's less runoff. So when you have a clustered animal feeding or a concentrated animal feeding operation, a CAFO, it's over impacting the land. They're basically destroying it. They're all in one spot. It turns to mud and it's not really able to be regenerated. Regenerative agriculture is what's so cool. You let the animals impact the land and then you move them off the land and it can regrow and the soil can sort of regenerate land is more productive and they can eat the grass. But the grain feeding is tough because it doesn't create the land that we need. We need as humans fertile soil and the clustered feeding doesn't do that, but the regenerative grass feeding, grass finishing does do that. That's what's always been happening in the United States and other parts of the world where large herds of ruminant animals will graze on the land is they increase the organic matter in the soil gradually by rotational grazing on their own. And that's, that's what made the middle part of the United States so fertile. Then we farmed the heck out of it with monocrop agriculture and depleted it of all those nutrients that got put in there. And that led to massive crises in terms of how we're going to grow food because we depleted all of it by doing monocrop plant agriculture. What's very clear, and I've heard many farmers like Will Harris from White Oak Pastures say this, having animals on the land is the only way to rehabilitate the land. Animals are the life support for the earth. And this sounds woo woo, but it's true. If you take animals off the land, the land will die and it'll die much more quickly if you do monocrop tilling agriculture on it, which is the part of the sort of environmental conversation that's been lost. So 
for so many reasons, the toxins on the grains, all these other things going on with the feeding of animals and this sort of ethical consideration of the land and future generations and how we make soil fertile, I'm a big advocate for as much grass finished meat as we can get. Now, I'll just add one more thing that people should be aware that some grass fed, grass finished meat is greenwashed. And that means that farmers are feeding their cattle grass seed pellets instead of actually feeding them grass. And you can label meat grass fed when it's been fed grass seed pellets, but grass seed pellets are not the same as grass that's green and growing. And so that's why I'm such an advocate for the farms that are doing it properly and not doing grass seed pellets, not greenwashing their grass fed meat. So just want to put that out there for people as well to be aware of. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I have utmost respect for, you know, ranches like white oak pastures that's doing it from a regenerative standpoint. I feel like, you know, it's our responsibility as humans to be good stewards of the land that we are on. Um, I feel like a lot of people argue against the scalability of that. Like, is that a sustainable and scalable model? Um, and I don't know if the answer is out there. Like, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'd be curious to get your take on it. Like, given just this massive population size that we've got ourselves into, is that like a feasible method? It's a great question, and I've been thinking about it a lot. So the first thing to note is that if we talk about the United States, that's a little different situation than the world. It's very hard for us in the United States to control what happens in other countries. I can't control how they raise cattle in India. I can't control the parasites that those cattle get in India. So really, I think most of the conversation needs to be focused on what we're doing in the United States, which is reasonable. And then if we say, if it's scalable in the US, we can develop methods. Grain finished cattle are raised on grass for 85% of their life. Every single cattle that is every single cow, every single head of cattle that's raised in the US could be grass finished because they already are. They're just now taken to feedlots to fatten them up. So if we just stopped feedlotting cattle and left them on pasture, we're already doing that. Mm -hmm. All of the cattle we eat have spent the majority of their life on pasture. They're being taken to these CAFOs for increased productivity and you know to fatten them up and make them bigger. But there's plenty of land and there are plenty of operations that are feeding cattle on pasture now. That could be the way that we do all of it. And then furthermore, I was out at Rome Ranch in Texas talking to the folks there. They're really cool. Um, they have bison and I got to walk up to a bison and stand literally two feet from a bison uh, without a fence. It was just right there in front of me. If that bison had wanted to kill me, um, it would have been a problem for me. But yeah. thankfully, maybe that bison knew that I was writing a book that, that might, <laughs> might be a good thing. But the, the head of the bison was like the size of my torso. It was incredible. It was really humbling. But, you know, they were showing me the land there in Texas. They're in Fredericksburg, Texas, Rome Ranch, and they're raising a couple hundred head of bison. The land there, if you look at a square of the earth, it's only about 5% grass or 10% grass. 90 to 95% of that is just dirt. And the reason it looks like that is because Europeans did monocrop agriculture and depleted that land of organic matter. Well, what do you think happens to that square foot or the 100 square feet? or thousands of square feet or thousands of acres of land when you raise animals in a regenerative fashion, that 90 to 95% of dirt starts to grow grass. And then that one pasture, that one acre, you can raise even more animals because that for one given square foot of land, now you have so much more grass on there and this natural feed for the animals. So regenerative agriculture, in my opinion, is definitely scalable and is definitely doable in the near future, but it's consumer demand driven. And so that I think is the crux, not whether we can do it, whether we will do it, whether people will value their health, the health of the soil enough to invest in that with their dollars. And that's gonna be a little more of a challenging thing to sell people because it's hard to look at two pieces of meat. I mean, you can look at a piece of grass fed meat, a piece of grain fed meat, a piece of grain fed meat doesn't look a whole lot different. It's more fatty, but doesn't look a whole lot, it doesn't look like diseased or anything, even though it's probably not the same in terms of cleanliness or may have more of these sort of fat and water-soluble toxins in it. So it's hard to convince people to spend 20, 30% more on their food for the promise of soil, which doesn't really hit them. You know, it might affect their grandchildren, but that's hard for humans to really appreciate. So I don't think the question is, can we do it? I think the question is, will we do it? 
And how do we help people appreciate that increase in quality that comes with this proper type of farming? But I think it's totally scalable. Now, if everyone, and that's, we could meet all of the beef demands in the United States right now with grass feeding. Absolutely. I firmly believe that. Like we could take away all the feedlots and every person that eats meat in the United States could eat the amount they're eating now with completely grass fed, grass finished animals. If more people became carnivorous and the amount of meat we were eating increased 20, 30%, then we have to think, okay, let's increase the amount of cattle in the United States, which we can probably do as well. Uh, especially if we take a lot of the land that is being used for feedlots and turn it into regenerated agriculture land. So it's something that would have to require a little bit of uh, engineering, environmental engineering, but I think it's totally doable. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel like it's, you know, you don't ever want to seem like a pessimistic type of person. You know, I'm trying to be like internally optimistic here, but I look at just people's buying behaviors and I look at, you know, the mass population, they don't, they don't think about nutrition. Like we're kind of all in this, this very niche specific group. And we're like, you know, listening to these podcasts, reading these books, reading your book, and just really diving into the whole art and story of regenerative agriculture. But so many people don't even care. And it's unfortunate because I feel like that mass population is, is going to kind of be the way things sway. So I don't know if it's going to take some, you know, aha moment or some massive downfall that's going to open people's eyes but it's it's kind of scary to think about what needs to happen in order for people to truly start voting with their dollars yes there has to be a pain point for people to want to do that and i i think that's why these conversations are important and why it's so cool to be able to bring people to places like white oak and say look at what's happening here and then they can see they can meet the people who are raising uh the the animals and, and, and I think once the meat and I mean, white oak, it's really good. And Belcampo, I mean, this is amazingly good meat. I think you can taste the difference in the meat. And when you see what's happening, it starts to click. But so many of us are so separated from that. I live in San Diego and, you know, I don't see farms out my window. But if I had a, you know, if I had a view of a couple of different farms and one of them was a CAFO, one of them was a clustered or a concentrated animal feeding operation. And the other one was white oak, I might think, you know what? I get it. I get it. Like, I think that this one is the way to do it. And, um, this is a good investment with my money, both for my own health, the health and, you know, the care with which the animals are treated and future generations. I mean, I've posted about this on Twitter. Soil is not very sexy, but I think that there are few things that will determine the persistence of the human species on the planet more than the amount of organic matter in our soil. If we deplete the soil of organic matter, we will die. It just yeah. we, we will not unless we can lab grow stuff, which is a horrible idea. But if we don't have soil, if dirt is the answer, right? And soil and dirt are kind of synonymous. Dirt is kind of the colloquial term of what soil becomes when you mess it up. But soil is the answer, and that's not very sexy. But we need to make soil sexy again. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to make all this stuff sexy again. Like I look at you know where you obtain your food and actually having an intimate relationship with that. I feel like that is incredibly important. That's why I'm an advocate for hunting. And, and you just recently went hunting not too long ago as well, right? Yeah, I went to uh, West Texas near Rome Ranch and did some bow hunting. And it's every time I hunt, it's humbling and I love it. It's, it's very moving to take an animal's life. And when I did that, I was reminded very clearly of my responsibility to be a good human and to kind of honor that. I don't think that humans should fear or shy away from eating animals, I think we should use that as a source of gratitude for very nutritious food and a reminder that we are all sort of tasked with being good people. And if we're going to honor the lives of these organisms, these beings that are feeding us, we do that the best we can by being nourished and by being kind and being connected with the food you are eating reminds you of that at every moment. I think that supermarkets, though convenient, have robbed us of many semi-spiritual experiences, right? Yeah, totally. I feel like we need to look at food as a renewable resource. I mean, look at animals as a renewable resource, but in doing so, treat them with every amount of respect possible. And, you know, hunting, taking more of a regenerative agriculture standpoint on, you know, raising this animal, I think that is absolutely key. I mean, just like I grew up having, you know, lambs and cows and, and whatnot, chickens, and 
there's just so many life skills that you take from that that you can't replicate or manufacture unless you do that thing. And I feel like the more people can be exposed to that, the the more of a movement we can make and, and hopefully in the right direction. I think you're totally right. I, uh, I want to get people on farms. I want to get people in the woods and hunting their own food or at least gathering the least toxic plant foods. Uh, I can assure you if you're picking berries, you're going to appreciate those berries a whole lot more than getting a little clamshell of berries at the grocery store. And if you're hunting an animal, you're going to appreciate that infinitely more than something that you just got from a butcher. And those, like you said, those are skills and those are, that creates a, an ethos, uh, a way of living that that's very different. And I, I do fear that, that we've kind of lost that. And in some ways I fear that that's a big, that's a big part of the unrest that we have today in society that we're being robbed of activities that are so satisfying. I mean, the days I spent hiking the Pacific Crest Trail were some of the most joyous of my life. And I wasn't necessarily hunting, but my existence was so simple. All I had to do was get up and walk and stay dry and stay warm and, you know, not be super hungry. And that's, that's a lot of what our ancestors used to have to do. And you're in the natural world and there's not so many constant distractions and attention grabbing things. And it's just a, such a different perspective. And I'm not suggesting that we all return to being hunter gatherers, but I do think that there's something to be said for trying to recreate some of that type of a lifestyle even today, because man, like gathering your food, hunting your food, being in the natural world, those are fundamentally human things that too few of us get to do anymore. We just, we're in front of computers and not even outside. And no wonder we're kind of unhappy. We've, we've kind of been sold a fairy tale that, that the convenience is, and I think it's the reverse actually. Yeah, it's funny, man. I feel like you know, we live in a, a day and age in which convenience is the key, and we all have these computers. I mean, heck, you and I are talking across Zoom, you know, opposite ends of the United States here, and there is a benefit to that. We, we're able to expose ourselves and, and embrace and, and impact more people because of all this technology, but at the same time, it's it's amazing how much it is stripped from our innate desires, you know, primitively speaking, as human beings. And just hearing you talk about hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, I mean, I can relate and resonate with that on so many different levels. And there's so much that w- people are just missing out on, and they don't even realize they're missing out on it. I mean, like, just hearing you talk, it's like, shoot, man, we need to share a campfire sometime just so that we can we should. cook a steak after, or better yet, kill a deer, cook that tenderloin up sitting across from the campfire and just fully be in that moment without social media, without Instagram, not having to take a picture to post on Twitter, like just be in the moment and connect on a deeper level than you ever could through the interwebs. That has been lost. It's been lost, man. And we're all on social media and that's how you and I connected and Danny Vega tried to connect us too, but goodness gracious, I think we do a whole podcast on the way that this, the synthetic human connection that we believe is happening through Instagram is just never good enough, right? It's not satisfying the human piece of what we need. Um, I'm probably going to end up writing a second book here in the next year or so. And part of that book is going to be about community. And we know based on studies that community um, is crucial for long-term happiness and longevity. And that's probably one of the things that really helps people live long lives, not plant-based diets. And I debunk all those plant-based diet Blue Zones myths in my book, The Carnivore Code. Check it out, you guys. But uh, yeah, face-to-face communication, sharing a campfire with you would be something that resonated for both of us at a human level. That's something we've all missed. So I hope people listening to this will do that with people they care about and, and go in nature. I mean, that's what we need as humans. I don't think that the solution is complex. Totally agree, man. Totally agree. Well, I don't want to take up too much time. I know you're a busy guy. Where can people go to get the book, uh, pick up a copy for themselves, and, and learn more about you? So the book is at thecarnivorecodebook.com. It's on Amazon. It's probably going to be wider distribution very soon. Stay on. You know, I'll let people know about that. Um, right now, it's on iBooks. It's on uh, eBooks on um, Amazon as well. So they can go thecarnivorecodebook.com to find it, or you can just go straight to Amazon and look for The Carnivore Code. My website is carnivoremd.com. 
and all my stuff is there. You can find links to all my social, which are all at CarnivoreMD. I've got my own podcast as well, which is called Fundamental Health. We'll get you on there sometime and we'll talk about hunting and all this stuff. I love it. And natural bodybuilding. And uh, yeah, people can find me all those spots. Awesome. I will link up to that. And again, man, I really just wanted to take time and say thank you because they're like, it's funny because in the, in the space, in the health and nutrition space, like I get questions all the time. I know you do too about all these little crazy nuanced details, you know, and that's all important, but I really, really respect the holistic approach you're taking to the food and, and having a, a bigger, deeper meaning to it all. Like that's, that is what appeals to me. Like that's, that is what I want my brand to embody. That's what I see your brand embodying. Like I feel like if you have that holistic approach to it all, it's not only going to be more sustainable, but it's going to be more fulfilling and it gives your life purpose. And when you have that, I mean, that, that's what, that's what makes you wake up excited to live the next day. So that's, that's huge, man. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate that so much, man. Thank you so much for those kind words. I, and at the end of the carnivore code, I say the same thing. I say, it's more about understanding. It's about more than understanding how our ancestors ate. It's about understanding how they lived. And I think that's what most of us are doing. We want to understand how they lived and um, that's what the second book is going to be about too. So hopefully people will check out both books. Well, I'll definitely be getting a copy of the second book, man. So just let me know when it goes live. Thanks, dude. I haven't even started writing it yet. Give me <laughs> <I'll figure> it <laughs> I got some ideas. <laughs> well, until then, man, take care, brother.